Excellent. Well, this morning, I'm going to carry on a theme that I started last couple of weeks, really, talking about the birth of the church. And last week, we talked about how the birth of the church, it was birthed in generosity. And I want to continue that theme by talking about our wealth and how we handle our possessions together, which is such a vital and important part of the Christian life. Um, Just as I do that, um, you'll know if you're part of the church, you've been around for a while, you'll know that we are in a time of change where we are currently a site of a church in Eastbourne. So we're a multi-site church, one site here, two sites in Eastbourne, we're part of that. Uh, We're currently changing to becoming our own autonomous church uh, in our own right. And as part of that process, we announced a few weeks ago that we are considering uh, three men in particular uh, to come into what we call eldership, which is the Bible's word for fathers in a church community. Um, So we're praying about that and having conversations with those people. Um, I've heard a a couple of encouraging comments from people. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, One thing I have heard a couple of times from people um, is is the request or the uh, advice or concern that the three men, including myself, four, are quite young. And uh, and yet we're calling them elders. And uh, in the next few weeks, I'm going to be talking a bit more about what eldership is. But I just thought I wanted to just mention briefly that um, I would love... Um, older men in the church community to come into eldership at some point. Uh, actually, a couple of years ago, I asked uh, a man in his 60s to join me in the eldership team. Uh, at the time, however, he felt God had called him on to Edinburgh. That's Chris Ashurst, those of you who know him. Uh, and so I really believe that having older men in positions of pastoral authority is important and good for us as a church. That's something I'd, I'd actively encourage. However, I also think eldership isn't it's not a political um, representative democracy where we try to pick a portion of a community. Actually, what we're looking for in, in recognizing elders, well, firstly, we are recognizing men in the community that are of influence and who love the church already. So you don't appoint elders, I don't think. You recognize them. Uh, and secondly, I think the, the men that we're, we're putting forth as people that we're praying with and about, considering coming to eldership, are men that, since the church has been going here, have been very actively involved and have really laid their lives down as much as they can in the years that we've been going as a church to serve the church. And I think that's what you're looking for in an elder, is uh, a man who behaves like a father towards a community in that he's willing to lay his life down as much as he can for that community. Um, I just wanted to mention that. So in the next couple of weeks, as I said, I think it's something we should probably teach into a bit more because it's a a strange concept for many of us, particularly if you're not... Well, I think we are in a change. We're going from a church um, set up, where, as I say, a site of a church in Eastbourne, where, for all intents and purposes, the church looks like it's led by me, um, a minister or a vicar without a dog collar or a dress. Uh, It looks like it's led by me, but actually our belief is that in the Bible, churches are led by teams of people. It just so happens that our team is spread across Eastbourne and Seaford, and that's part of the reason why we're wanting to, to change because I don't believe churches should be led by one person anyway. Uh, that's the reason why a few weeks ago we appointed a, a group of men and women, many of them older, uh, that we've called deacons, which is the Bible's word for servant leaders or champions in a church. And so it's just a journey that we're going on. I'd love to talk more with you about that. If you have questions, concerns, comments, please do come and talk to me about that. Um, we are exploring things together as a church family. Nevertheless, if you have a Bible, we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 4. Each week we sit under the teaching of this book. We allow it to govern our lives. I got a message from a friend of mine this week who said that he'd finished reading the entire Bible this week. Uh, I feel like I should give him a certificate. Chris, 
well done. Um, started reading the Bible in October. He's finished reading it now. Fantastic. It's a big book. He's done very well. Um, and he texted me, I think, because he wanted a certificate. <laughs> my encouragement to him and my encouragement to us is that we want to be those who read the Bible. But as much as we want to read the Bible, our goal is to allow the Bible to read us. Uh, Hebrews 4 says that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so every time we come to church, we're not looking to the person at the front to deliver a talk. We're actually looking for them to get a sword out and cut us up. Um, that's what the Word of God does. It exposes our innermost thoughts, and it transforms us. It changes us. That's my belief in what we're doing together. So we're going to read from Acts 4, and we're going to allow the Bible to read us together. I'm reading the same passage that I read last week because as I read it, I thought, oh, there's so much here that I feel like God's wanting to use to read us and to speak to us about. But this is Acts chapter 4, um, verse 32 through 37. It's a picture of the first church, what Jesus' disciples did after he went to be with his father. This is what it says. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is God's word. Now last week we talked about, well, I used a metaphor of a tsunami. A tsunami begins at an epicenter, an earthquake, the movement of tectonic plates deep underneath the ocean floor. And the epicenter emanates out to the surface and creates a wave that we describe being like the grace of God upon us. That's what it says. It says the grace, the great grace was upon them. There is a grace and a generosity and a kindness of God that is like the sun on our back that warms our hearts. But there is, there is also a grace that propels us into action and moves us. And if we put the, the next slide up. Um, this, is a, this is an image of the, the whole text that we've just read together. And what we said is that this, this verse here, um, next slide, this verse here says great grace was upon them all. This is the epicenter of the text. And it's out from that that almost the implications of everything else that happened in the early church happened. And so today we're going to be continue to consider some of the, the implications of the great grace of God being upon them. And what you see in this section is that it, it goes up, the epicenter goes up uh, to affect the top half, and it goes down to affect the bottom half. And the top half is about these people and how they, they treated one another. Um, it affects the people of God and the way they related together. And then the bottom half is about how it affected much more their possessions in the way that they worshipped God with their things. So people and possessions. Next slide. There we go. That's what we're looking at. But let's start off with talking about this. Your people. Who are your people? Your tribe. The people you identify with. The people you feel happiest around. Um, what tends to happen, I observe, is that well, when we're young, we go to school, and we've got loads of people, loads of little people. They're all like us, and they're everywhere. And then you leave full-time education, and gradually, over time, the amount of people you relate to, your people, gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And you find yourself hiding into, um, what's the word, like micro, microcosms? 
micro something, my brain's gone blank, um, you hide it into little cliques and groups and tribes, and sometimes those tribes are very big. We identify nationally by our, you know, we're English or we're, we're African or we're Polish. Sometimes they're very big, like our race perhaps, I'm, I identify as a white male, and that becomes an identity marker, it's my tribe. Sometimes it's very small, I identify with those people who like that indie rock band or that particular author. What we observe in the world, though, is that there are different types of people. Um, there are tribes that we identify with. These are, this is some tribal war paint, um, which from my youth work days and from being a father, we, we put on most days, most weeks in our house. We have different tribes. We have the pink tribe, and we have the blue tribe, or green. We have the orange tribe, and we have the blue tribe. And we line ourselves up and say, these are my people. These are my people. These are your people. We're not like those people. We're different from those people. And we, we put the, the, the color on our, oh gosh, that's quite a lot. We put the, we put the color on our arms or on our, I'm not going to do it on my face because um, that would look strange. Uh, I'll put it on your face, Simon. Um, we are identify as, I'm of the pink, I'm not like them. Or they might come over here and say, no, I'm of the greens and I'm not like them. And this is ingrained in us. It's a way that we get security. Uh, and uh, from a young age, I observe this in children, that they quickly gravitate to finding a tribe. I used to run a, a kids club in Eastbourne. Uh, we, used to, we used to hire double-decker double buses and bring children in from different estates. And we used to put on a, a club, a show for kids. And um, we've got a child who's lost his mother here. Anybody know where Toya is? <laughs> um, we used to bus these kids in from the different areas. And we, we named the different buses. So we had the green bus and we had the blue bus. And there was one particular kids worker in my group who was particularly lively. And he... He invented chants for the group. And so we had the green gorillas that, that stood up and they said, go, go, green gorillas, green gorillas, go. We could get you to learn that. But then what I, the kids would chant this. They would stand on their chairs. There'd be about 70, 80 kids in this hall just yelling, go, go, green gorillas, green gorillas, go. But then there was also the blue team. And what I observed with the blue team, these were the blue sharks, they turned nasty because you don't need much encouragement to turn nasty. They started singing, we are the blue sharks, we are the blue sharks, we don't like green gorillas. And so I used to run this kids' club every Saturday, bust these kids in from the estate, want to teach them about the love of God and Jesus. And you've got the blues going, I hate the greens. We've got the greens going, I hate the blues. Thought, Goodness me, it's ingrained into us. We find identity markers and we align ourselves very quickly. This is who we are. Now, the Old Testament starts with the entire human race go, moving into rebellion against God. The entire human race, all of us aligned in opposition against God, is what the Bible says about the human race. But then God, what he does is he picks, he picks one tribe from all the tribes on the planet, and he says, this tribe here, the family of Abraham, they're going to be my people, and I'm going to bless them, and I'll be with them. And what they do will prosper. And they become the blues. But they're in a nation where there's lots of different tribes. And they are set against one another. But the promise in the Bible is that God, the reason he chose one people, was that through this people, all of the people might come to know him again. All of the tribes that are in opposition against him might come to know him. But what happens in the Old Testament is you have a narrow stream, one tribe, and it gradually builds and builds and builds until you find in the book of Acts, on chap in chapter 2, a couple of chapters before what I read, you've got Jewish people, the blue team, living all around the world. And on the day that Peter stands up and tells them, tells the first ever Christian sermon, it says this, 
It says, while Peter was speaking, they were speaking in different languages because the Holy Spirit comes on them. And the Jews gathered are gathered from Parthian and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene. What you happen is that the Jewish people spread across the planet and then they hear the message of Jesus and they put their hope in Jesus. And the message is that this narrow stream that was just the blues starts to incorporate the entire world. So that before long, everybody is included in the people of God, the oranges and the blues and the greens and the pinks and I'm making a mess of my hands and the stage oh that one's not working you get the picture (laughs) until the point that you have the Christian community gathered and it doesn't say we're this nation of origin and we're against you we're better than you instead what the Bible does it puts us all on a level playing field He said, all of us in rebellion against God. All of us have been pursued by God. All of us can find salvation in God. And then what you see in the gathering of the church is that people from all different backgrounds come together in Christ. In Acts 4.32 that we read, it says, The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, you see a picture of heaven and the future And it says there was gathered around the the throne of the Lamb people from every tribe and every tongue. In 1 Peter, Peter writes a letter to a church toward the end of his life. And he writes in 1 Peter 2, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. He says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Our nature is to create Unity through uniformity. We insist everyone must be like us, believe exactly the same things as us in order to be welcome. We insulate ourselves against people who are different from us. In fact, we go as far as demonizing people who are different from us. And so you end up with class wars and race wars and wars against the nations. But in God, God does something quite different. It says in Ephesians 2 that God in Christ has broken down the dividing walls of hostility between, two, between people and abolishing the laws that made them distinct. And he has made the two or the three or the four one in Christ. That's God's plan. And there's this beautiful phrase used of the church in Acts 4 there, that they were of one heart and soul. In other words, they were in this together. Their fates were bound up with one another. Be it ridicule or being thrown to the lions, they were, they were together in this as a people. And that phrase, one heart and soul, is a beautiful phrase. It appears elsewhere in the Old Testament. When a, a military leader and prince in the kingdom called Jonathan, he is out looking for the enemies that they've been told to oppose. And he says to his armor bearer, let's go up there and attack this group of enemies. It's just two of us and there's 50 or so of them. And his armor bearer says to him, do whatever is in your heart, I am with you, heart and soul. There's a solidarity and a strength that's implied in the early church. The church was born, people from different nations, united in this one. And whereas in the world, we insist on unity through uniformity, in the church, people hold on to their distinctiveness. So around the throne, there are different nations, different tribes, different tongues, all with one voice. We maintain our distinctiveness, our difference, and yet the Bible says we're one. My point in all of this is that the book of Acts records for us the vision of what the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. 
as a church, in us as a people. The epicenter of God's grace emanates out to the edges to destroy dividing walls of hostility, whether those hostilities are nation, race, class, education, sex, gender, whatever it is. The grace of God wants to emanate out to those edges to say, those things are not your identity markers anymore. You are one in Christ. And whereas we want to settle, we want to isolate We want to insulate ourselves against one another. Jesus wants more for us, wants more for the church. I was talking to a friend just this past week and said there is a challenge in being part of a church that's growing because we get comfortable. We want to settle in close relationships. We want to make friendships in the church. And yet there's always new people coming. Well, the world's way of thinking would be just look after your own just build a close friendship group out of two or three people that you know. But Jesus is constantly wanting to say, bring in the outsider. Bring in more. I want a bigger family. I want a family that includes more and more people. There's a saying in in England that an Englishman's home is his castle. And that's true to some extent, but I think these days it's it's less that our, our homes are our castles, and it's more that our families have become our castles. An Englishman's family is his castle. Friends, the Holy Spirit wants to smash those castles apart. That The church isn't supposed to be a castle of protection that just looks after its own. It's supposed to be a hospital of healing that invites the nations, the waifs and the strays, the down and out, the poor, the broken, the hurting, and says, come be part of us. We're those who are hurting and broken, but we're finding healing in him and his community. I don't know if you've come across this image before. This is... um, uh, a candle maker or candle holder from another civilization. People gathered together. The church is like a group of people like that, except for a distinct difference that we're meant to be standing facing outwards with our backs faced to the middle, looking for the lost, looking to care for those who aren't here. So the question might come in your mind, or at least it comes in my mind, how do we do that? But how do we create that? How do people Build that kind of community. Well, in Acts 4, you see the way they behave together. And it answers the question of what does it mean to be a member in the church? How do we become members of the church? Because membership of the church is different from what I've just described. It's different from being a member of a nation state. It's different from being a member of a, a gym. What do we see in the book of Acts? Well, actually, that question is asked to Peter on the day of Pentecost. He preaches a sermon, and it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, When the crowd heard Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter, What shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. The gospel's preached. The, the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection and how it comes to destroy hostility and dividing walls and to create a unity in a family is proclaimed. They say, what should we do? And Peter says, you have to repent. Repent, as we've said before, means turn your life around. Change your way of thinking. Stop living for self. Start following him in everything you do and be baptized. Baptism is a symbol of death and new life. Peter says, you become part of the people of God by repenting and being baptized. And then how did they behave? How did they go on? Did they run membership courses and insist on people signing documents to join the church? 
Well, no, what you see, I think, in the Bible is four clear things of what it means to be a member of a church. And it is different from being a member of a gym. It is different from signing a box and ticking a, ticking a form or signing your name on a line. Being a member of a church, well, firstly, it's for Christians. A Christian is someone who has repented of their sin and been baptized as an expression of their faith in the Messiah, Jesus. But then four clear things follow. One, they meet together regularly. So there's a, there's a regular gathering of the church every week in this case, or house to house. Day by day, they were meeting. Secondly, they use their gifts to serve one another. They're opening their homes to one another. They're opening their hearts to one another. We've been talking about this a lot over the last few weeks, that, that hospitality is the heart of Christianity. It, it, hospitality is the message of inclusion, where we open our homes and open our hearts. That's what it means to be a member of a church, is to, to serve, to use what you've got for the good of a community. To be part of this church, we say that you have to attend, be part of the church. But then you also have to serve in some capacity. Use the gifts that you've got to serve the community. It also looks like generous giving, as we said last week. These people gave, they sold everything they had to be part of this community. Being part of a church wasn't something they did on a Sunday. It was their entire life. So being part of a church looks like attending. It looks like serving. It looks like giving generously to the community. And it also looks like receiving the leadership of the church. You see that here, when they took their gifts and they laid it at the apostles' feet, it says. Which means they submitted what they were bringing to the recognized leaders of the church. In this case, by the way, um, the apostles were, were, it was unlikely that they were any older than in their early 20s, maybe mid-20s at best. So people of the community, old and young, male and female, coming and submitting, not because of these men, but because they recognized the authority that Jesus had put in them and given them. And so it looks like that to be part of a church. It's to attend, it's to serve, it's to give, and it's to receive the leadership of the church over your life. Now, those first three you could start doing today. You, you're here already, so well done. But you could start serving. You could join one of our serving teams and help out in the hospitality or the, or the welcome team or in the kids team. You can serve. You can be part of us. We've got the buckets around the back. You can start giving as well. And if you want to become a member of the church, Come and have a chat with me, and we'll talk about exactly what that looks like. Receive the spiritual leadership of the church in your life. That's what it looks like, those four things. Not a course, not a class, but just behaving like a member of the family. I've seen this in churches, not this one and many churches, where people do a membership course, sometimes for six or seven weeks, and they learn all the things that the church believes. We believe this, we believe this, we believe this, and at the end they tick a box and say, yes, I want to be a member. And then carry on behaving like just an occasional attender. The grace of God, the epicenter of grace, wants to work its way out into every part of your life until it affects your people. Who are your people? These are my people. These, is who, these are the people I identify with. God doesn't want us to join a church. He wants to be part of a family. The second thing that it affects, it affects our people. But then the shockwaves emanate out and it affects our possessions. It turned a narrow tribe into a global people, and so God wants to affect the way we think about our money and our possessions similarly. And for the Jews that are in the first church here, they understood better than any of us, really, that they were not owners of their possessions. We have been raised to think that we belong and we're entitled to the things that we're given. 
In the Bible, instead, it says that we're not owners of anything. We are stewards. We are borrowers. We are hirers of the things that God gives us. It starts with the breath and life in a human being. In the Garden of Eden, God breathes his breath into the first man. He becomes a living creature. He's alive only because God's breath is in him. And then it continues throughout the Bible, the things that they have. The Jewish people realized we are just borrowers of the things that God's given us. We are stewards. In actual fact, in the Old Testament, 16 times God says that the firstborn or the first fruit among my people belongs to me, he says. Whether it's the land, he says, the land is mine. Whether it's the, the tribe of the Levites, he says, they're mine. But with the firstborn and the first fruits, everything that they develop and they grow and they produce, he says, it belongs to me. He's the owner. So in Exodus 13, verse 2, it says this, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine, he says, belongs to God. And then in Exodus 34, 19, all that, the wo- all that open the womb are mine, God says. All your male livestock, you, the firstborn of your cows and your sheep, they are mine. In Numbers 8, he says this, All the firstborn among the people of Israel are mine, both of man and of beast. And on the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I consecrated them for myself. There's this principle in the Bible that the first belongs to God. And he alludes to, obviously, the the Exodus passing. And when God killed all the firstborn males in Egypt in order to see the Israelites freed from slavery, he alludes to the reason why he did that. He said, the firstborn are mine, whether Jews or Egyptians, they're mine, so I'm claiming them for myself. And this grates against us because we have been trained to think that we are kings and queens in our own empires and our own kingdoms. Whereas the Bible says, no, you're not. God is the king. He owns everything. And what he says is, the first that I give you belongs to me, and you're to offer it in sacrifice, or you're to offer it through redemption. So when an animal produces its first offspring... It was sacrificed to God in the Old Testament. When a a mother produced her first child, it was redeemed back with a sacrifice. So it says this in Numbers 3. It says, Behold, I have taken the Levites from among the people of Israel instead of every firstborn that opens the womb among the people of Israel. The Levites are mine. The Levites were a tribe among the people of God. And he says, Listen, rather than taking every firstborn son, instead this whole tribe, they're mine. That's how God sees the world. He created it. Everything we have is borrowed from him and he is entitled to it. In practice, what that meant of the Jewish people was that of all of their wealth, they offered one-tenth of it as an act of worship and sacrifice to God. The word tenth is the word tithe. So they tenthed, they tithed the, the, a tenth of everything that God gave them, they gave it to God. The word tenth or a tithe in the Old Testament is often, well, the number ten is often used as a, as a test. So God gives uh, Pharaoh ten plagues to test his heart before he eventually takes the firstborn son. In the desert, the Israelites are given ten commandments, ten rules for living. Uh, in the desert after that, in the wanderings, God tests the Israelites' heart ten times with different things. And in, in Jacob, in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, Jacob's wages are changed 10 times by his uncle Laban. 10 heart tests are put on Jacob to see if he's still going to be faithful and work for an unrighteous master in the story. 
the tithe, what we do with our possessions, the Bible says, is the ultimate heart test of our worship. In actual fact, in the book of Malachi, it says that to withhold the tithe, the tenth from God, is to rob God. And he tells them, look, you can test me, you can tenth me, tithe me in this. Give, 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 test me, see if I can be trusted, see if I can come through. And so, for the Jewish people, if they had to choose between do I go on holiday or do I give a tenth of my stuff as an act of worship, they give a tenth. Do I buy a cup of coffee or do I give a tenth to God? They, buy a, they give a tithe. That's, what we, that's how they behaved in the Old Testament. It lays down the principles for us. And often people, when they hear this sort of thing, they think, oh, that sounds very stern and strict. Is that just an Old Testament command? Is that because Moses gave them a law? Well, actually, in Genesis 14, Abraham comes across this mysterious figure called Melchizedek, a, a high priest, he's called. And without even being told to, he just gives a tenth of all of his stuff to this high priest. And they have communion, they break bread and have wine. It's a, it's a strange story in the Old Testament. But that's before the law came. So tithing, tenthing, giving of our stuff as an act of worship happened before the law of Moses came. Well, that's all very well and good, you might say. But now, of course, we're in the New Testament. Well, let, me, uh, let me explain this a little bit more. So I have some money here. So I have 10 of these. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 100 pounds. How much of this 100 pounds, these 10 notes, is the tithe? One. It's a tenth. You, you remember that from maths. But which one is the tithe? It's the first one I spend. It goes straight away as an act of worship to God. Because what often happens in our lives and in the Old Testament, what happened was that they spent everything they needed to on themselves. They went on holiday, they got their cars, they bought their new donkeys, and then they were like, oh, crumbs, I haven't really got anything left over. I'll just tip God at the end of the month or at the end of the year or at the end of the cycle of the harvest. And we can behave like that as well with our things. We think, I'll manage my stuff. I'll do the important things first. I'll pay for my Sky subscription, and obviously I'll pay for my mortgage, and obviously I'll, you know, the kids need to go swimming, and so I'll pay for their swimming lessons. And then at the end of my month, I might give to God anything I've got left over. Well, the Old Testament practice was the first fruits of everything they had belonged to God. So that became the tithe. Now, the question, again, that's still hanging is, but that's the Old Testament. That's how the Jewish people behaved. We're in the New Testament. Jesus has come. We don't have to keep those laws anymore. Well, what you often see, however, in the, in the pattern of the Bible's storyline is that what was commanded in the Old Testament gets expanded in the New Testament. So, the Old Testament command was, do not commit adultery. Jesus says, I say to you, here he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, anyone who even looks at another person with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Think, what? In the Old Testament it says, do not murder. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. That's a good starting place. But I say to you, anyone who even says to his brother, you fool, has committed murder in his heart. And so what you see in the distance between the Old Testament and the New Testament is that Jesus comes and where they had a little narrow command, he expands it to include their heart and the rest of their life. What you see in the Old Testament is this narrow command, make sure the first of everything you get goes to God. And then in the New Testament, when the New Testament, what you see in the book of Acts, 
without being told to do anything. They sold everything they had and gave it to the apostles, laid it at their feet as an act of worship. Sometimes people say, I give my time to God as an act of worship instead of my resources. Which is fantastic. Giving our time is great. But the New Testament makes it clear God wants everything. Our entire lives are to be an act of worship that we give to God. Plus, it's difficult to tithe the tenth of your time. It's difficult to give the first fruits of your time, which is the first fruits. When you first wake up, God doesn't want that. (laughs) That's the bit where I'm most grumpy in the day. The answer is that God wants everything we have. When we come to Christ, everything we have belongs to him. And so, whereas I think the practice of tenthing or tithing is a good practice, it's a starting point for my life, not the finishing goal. It's not the ceiling, it's the floor. Now, I know for the past 14 years or so, we as a family have learned to tithe, to give at least 10% of our Uh, resources as an act of worship to God. And every time we do that, we come against the, the fear and the lie, I won't have enough. God won't provide. I won't be able to do this. I won't be able to do that. I won't be able to go here. I won't be able to... I come against those things. And yet for the past 14 years, I have known God's grace and generosity on my life to the point that I've never gone without Now, I may have not been able to make all of my first choices. I may have not been able to have all of the holidays that I wanted. But nevertheless, I've known the blessing and kindness of God over my life. When you tithe, what you're doing is you're also, you're managing and controlling your resources. Because you can't give money that you chaotically don't even know how you spend or know where it comes and goes. People often say with their money, I don't know where it goes. Well, if you don't know where it goes, you can't give it. So, but when you learn to tithe, you learn to control your money. You learn to understand, I'm going to increase my standard of giving. I'm going to increase, not my standard of living all the time, but my generosity and things. That's the challenge for us in the Christian life. And it's not a command that God says, do this or else. It's an invitation in light of, in view of, the great mercy and kindness of God, in view of those things. Now offer everything you have as an act of worship to God. And so when our money comes in, we have a discipline that we give away at least 10% of that money. But our mindset isn't, I have to give this and the rest, phew, I can live off that. Our mindset instead is, everything I have belongs to God. How much shall I keep? How much do I need to live off? And again, I know as I say that, I'm coming up against a lot of rational, understandable obstacles. But the journey that Jesus wants to take you and me on is a journey of grace and of generosity with our lives to the point that we learn he can be trusted. He can be trusted with my wealth. He can be trusted with my time. He can be trusted with my sex life. He can be trusted with my resources. He can be trusted. And every time I learn he can be trusted, I give, I respond, I act, I give everything I can to him. And so if you're not someone who ever has ever given generously or sacrificially to God before, Jesus' invitation to you is, well, first of all, are you in control of your money? Are you in debt? 
Let's work on those things. Let's go on the budgeting course. Let's learn to be wise stewards of the things that God has given us. Secondly, it's learn to start giving. And rather than just giving occasionally, start to give regularly. And then once you've done that, trust him to give more and more and more. It's often quoted about a man named John Wesley in church history who learned as a young man he needed 28 pounds to live off. Back in the day when pounds were a lot, a lot, more, value, a lot more valuable than they are now. He learned that he, he needed 28 pounds to live off. And throughout his life, his income increased. But he maintained the same standard of living almost until the day he died. So he, he lived off 28 pounds and gave everything else away. As his money increased, he's lived off 28 pounds and he gave more away. To the point that I know of some people who, who, who do what's called reverse tithing in that they've learned to live off 10% of their income and have given 90% away. That's radical. That's generosity. That is the heart's response to understanding the grace of God in our lives. And I could tell you story after story of God's amazing provision to us as a family. But that's almost not the point. (laughs) The point is, this is the heart's response to the generosity of God. One of my favorite stories, though, is a friend of mine in the church who who was a family. they They were struggling financially. And one day the wife said to her husband, the dog bowl's broken. We don't even have enough money to repair the dog bowl. That same day, she went to visit a friend, knocked on the door, door, door opened, the lady answered the door and said, oh, by the way, we're chucking this away. Do you want a spare dog bowl? When you learn to live generously and sacrificially to God, you find those sorts of things happening a lot more because you learn that God can be trusted with your wealth. Let's come back to the central verse of what we've been looking at together from Acts chapter 4. See, what we saw with the people was that though we isolate ourselves and we become one tribe, God creates a tribe out of every tribe. It's the same with our wealth. Whereas we want to keep everything we have, God's grace encourages us to give away everything we have. But in Acts 4 verse 33, the clue is there again. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And as a result of that, great grace was upon them. The apostles weren't testifying to a private and personal religious experience that they'd had. They weren't, they weren't going around telling everybody, we went into our prayer closet and we meditated and we had this experience, now come and listen to us. They weren't, though those things are good. What they were doing is they were going around telling everybody, Jesus Christ died, and then three days later, he rose and is alive. And as a result of that fact, that epicenter, everything in our lives has been overhauled and upturned and transformed. That's what the grace of God does. But they were pointing all the time to this event in history to the point that anybody could ask, did that event happen? And if it didn't, if it didn't, you know, if it didn't happen, then none of this should happen. Don't give your money. Don't try to form one people group out of all the people groups in the world. Keep, protect, build a family of close friends. Don't have new experiences. They're dangerous and scary. But if Jesus is alive, then that transforms everything. It transforms how I approach the things in my life. It transforms how I approach the people in my life. Whereas I want to shut the door, pull up the drawbridge, and just look after my family. If Jesus is alive, then I open my heart and I open my home. I use the things that God's given me to serve people. If Jesus is alive, I can trust him with my resources. 
day by day, year by year, I can learn to trust him. Because I know he provides. I know that he's good. But it all hangs on this. Is Jesus alive? And it's that that the apostles were going around preaching. And it's as a result of that that great grace was upon them. The epicenter of the resurrection emanated out into every part of their lives. The people of God and the possessions of the people of God are assessed in light of that moment. We are the people of the resurrection. And if the resurrection didn't happen, the Apostle Paul says we are most to be pitied out of all the world. I don't know if many Christians could say that. If Jesus isn't alive, oh well, I have some nice spiritual experiences nonetheless. I'm part of a loving community, big deal. For the Apostle Paul and for the first Christians, they said if he's not alive, we are most of all people to be pitied. Why? Because they were giving away their stuff. Because they were crossing racial boundaries and putting themselves in harm's way and at risk. Because everything they had, they were laying down in service of his cause. The Apostle Paul, everywhere he went, he said, I know that shipwrecks and imprisonments and beatings await me. That's what it means to live as a Christian. It's to live as someone who understands the world has rejected me. If Jesus is not alive, we are most of all people to be pitied, the Apostle Paul says. And when we gather Sunday by Sunday, we allow this to read us by challenging us. As we sit there, this is challenging. It ought to challenge you. I know many of you, some of you will be offended at the very idea of this. But the offense really is this. Is he alive? If he's alive, then none of this is yours. It's all his anyway. 